And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday, Bruce Anderson, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. That's next. And hello there, Hump Day, Wednesday. Bruce is in Ottawa. Bruce Anderson, that is, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. That's what's coming up. How are you today? You know, I'm having a bad hair day. I'm just looking at myself on Zoom, Peter, and it looks ridiculous. Do you know what that's like? Oh, never mind. Okay. But I no, it's not. Moving on. I'm okay other than that. I'm okay. Good. I'm okay. It's a little cold. You know what we haven't talked about in, it seems, in months? And, you know, perhaps some people are glad we haven't talked about it. But it is, I think, important to check in once in a while because we can't ignore this story. It's... um, it's still a dominant factor in the way our southern neighbor operates, and that, of course, is the Trump story. So there are, in fact, two stories south of the border that I want to touch on because they both deal with smoke, mirrors, and the truth. On Trump himself, there have been lots of books, you know, dozens, literally dozens of books out since uh, he lost the presidency fair and square um, a year ago. He lost it fair and square. He, of course, is arguing that he didn't lose it at all, but that's aside from the point. There are all these books, most of them written by either critics or people who have an axe to grind of some kind, but not the one that came out, well, it came out just yesterday. So it's making a few headlines this week, and it's by you know, admittedly, one of his biggest allies, one assumes, a real Trump loyalist, the former chief of staff in the White House, Mark Meadows, who was chief of staff to Donald Trump right up to the end. And his new book's called The Chief's Chief. And the thing that's got a lot of attention strikes to this whole heart of truth, right? We we all remember when Trump went into hospital, for COVID. Well, it turns out, according to Meadows, that Trump knew days before that he had COVID, in fact, even before the debate with Joe Biden, that he breathed the virus on hundreds of people. I think the last count was 500. Now, Trump denies this, says it. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't test positive before the debate, like Meadows says in the book. And so Meadows, <laughs> Meadows wrote the book, right? It actually says it right in the book. But Meadows says, oh, of course, uh, the former president's right. I must have got that wrong. But that's not all. He talks about how disastrous the situation was for Trump on the day they finally convinced him to go to the hospital. They told him that if he didn't go to the hospital, walking out on his own steam to the helicopter, they'd have to carry him out on a gurney two days later. So he agreed to go. But he was in an incredibly weak position even at that point according to meadows he couldn't even carry his briefcase which i don't know according to rumor doesn't have anything in it anyway but he couldn't even carry it out he was so weak now trump hasn't denied this yet i'm sure there'll be a denial come out at some point if it hasn't already but it underlines this whole question of smoke mirrors and the truth 
and I was wondering what your uh, what your take on it because this is different. A Meadows book about the final days of Trump is a lot different than you know Bob Woodward's book or Bob Costas's book or all these different books that are that are out. What uh, what do you think? Well, I do think that Mark Meadows' role in the in the review of what happened on January 6th is an important story for us to watch. I mean, the, you know, from my standpoint, I kind of think that the process of trying to figure out who was responsible for what, when it came to the insurrection on January the 6th, has taken a long time. There's been relatively little fresh information that's been put out to the public. What there has been makes it pretty clear that it was a substantially organized event and that, the former president knew a fair bit about what was going on and, and was certainly cheering on. Uh, I don't want to call them protesters, the rioters, the insurrectionists, that sort of thing. Um, and it does sound like Mark Meadows has agreed to cooperate with that inquiry. Unlike some of the other participants in the Trump regime who've decided that they're going to um, make their living by looking like they're resistors uh, to that or, um, are, are otherwise trying to avoid any any further discussion of uh, of the events of January six. So I'm very interested in Meadows because he was obviously close, and and uh, the stories that I've read indicate that he was very familiar uh, with the communications traffic leading up to January the sixth, and so he has some facts that are important to tell. Now those haven't come out yet because they, I guess. The, to the degree that he's disclosed them, that it's been behind closed doors as part of this process, or, or maybe that's yet to come. But I guess the larger question, Peter, is uh, I'm still, you know, whenever we started talking about Trump, when you started the podcast, it was and continues to be a mystery to me how America, with so many talented people, can find itself in a situation where we may be heading back to them re-electing Donald Trump. You know, in Canada, we have partisan feelings uh, sometimes about uh, our leaders. You know, liberals don't like some of the conservatives who've been prime minister. Conservatives don't like some of the liberals who've been prime minister. And, and nonpartisan people can, you know, feel kind of angry at this leader or that leader. But when, when I look back at the history of people who've led our country, there's none that occupy any zone even close to the level of incompetence and, you know, I struggle to find the word. Um, but, but the idea of somebody willfully doing harm, willfully not accepting facts and information, willfully ignoring briefings that he was getting, uh, doing things that were so decidedly for his personal interest rather than for the national interest. We've never seen anything even remotely like that. And, and neither, I don't think had America, but here we are in a situation where they seem unable or unwilling to imagine uh, that there could be a better person than him. That is to say, you know, the large majority of, of Republican voters and not surprisingly, it's kind of horrifying all of the democratic voters and, and probably, you know, a lot of people around the world who are going, how could America make that mistake again? If you have a do-over, how do you make that mistake again? You know, I was listening to Michael Cohen the other day, and, you know, Cohen was 
Trump's former lawyer and, and incredible loyalist would go to the wall for him, as he said more than a few times. Uh, but then it eventually uh, turned against him when, when Trump sort of abandoned him, never gave him a pardon, nothing. He went to jail. He's written books. He's got a very successful podcast right now, um, Cohen. But Cohen was asked the same question. Uh, do you believe it? Is it, is it real? Is he, uh, do you really think he'll run again? And Cohen is adamant. says, this is absolutely not going to run again. This is all a, uh, a con job for money. That what's happening here is Trump is, uh, is grifting. He's, he's putting as much money as he can in his pocket from his supporters who are called every day. And he's got hundreds of millions of dollars that he's put in a, in a war chest for a potential campaign, which legally he's allowed to do. And I think it's something like 90% of it he can keep for himself if he wants. He only has to use like 10% of it for a political campaign. Yeah. So that he's, Cohen believes he's going to keep this going right to the end and then pull the plug at the end said, no, I can't do it. I'm, I'm not going to run again and walk away with whatever it is in terms of money. Cohen believes this is the classic Trump move. Well, I think that's plausible. And there's a part of me that uh, I don't know if I want to believe that because that's not a terribly good outcome. Guy leaves office, grifts hundreds of millions of dollars, and then decides to kind of not do the thing that he was grifting the money, you know, supposedly to do. That's not a great outcome, but it is definitely better than Donald Trump running for president again and better by leagues than Donald Trump being president again. I'm a little bit worried about Cohen's theory for two reasons. One is that I've followed his theories closely and, and with some, you know, hopefulness, uh, you know, he's been saying Trump's going to jail and this is all going to come unraveled and the whole empire is going to come down. And I'm kind of waiting for that. And I'm wondering when he's going to be right about some of that. And then maybe he's not. Uh, so that's, that's one thing, but the other part of his theory is that Trump really only cares about money. And I don't know if that's true. I mean, on some level, you know, Trump has never been very good um, about making money, about figuring out how to keep money, about not getting deep in debt, about not having businesses go bankrupt. And he does look on many days to me like a guy who craves the adoration uh, more than he craves the money. He craves the trappings of power and the feeling that the world has to bend to his will and that he can kind of order his generals around and move the chess pieces of, uh, of America around to, uh, to, to meet his whims. Um, it would be, you know, easy in my mind to say, well, he likes the idea of making money. It isn't the thing that maybe makes him most passionate about what he wants to do every day. Now, he's getting older and maybe he's losing a step. And maybe, you know, when he had COVID, he couldn't carry his briefcase. Um, but you remember he has this kind of wacky theory about energy that you shouldn't, shouldn't do exercise because you're born with a certain amount of energy in your body. And every day, every way that you expend some of that energy, that's gone forever and you'll never get it back. It's a completely kind of bonkers idea. But uh, 
I like that idea. Maybe, right? But maybe he's maybe that he's means you never ever have to exercise again, right? Right? And you end up you looking know, like I don't he think does. he makes a connection between eating and uh, adding energy to your body. Anyway, he's he's quite a piece of work. And I know that there are probably going to be some people listening to our podcast who are going to, why is Bruce so harsh on Trump? But I'm sorry, I am. And uh, uh, buckle up, because if he runs again, I'm going to stay harsh on him. <laughs> well, you know, one of the ways he's he's considering his future in terms of, because you're right, I don't think anybody disagree that he loves being the center of attention. And he's been that way for decades, you know, long before he ever get into, got into politics, he loved being the center of attention. Um, you know, whether it was on the cover of magazines or, you know, owning a football team and a whole variety of things ever since the 80s. Um, he's been that guy. Well, his, his latest idea on staying at the, the center of attention, because since he got kicked off Twitter, is creating his own social media venture. And it's going to be called Truth Social or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently he's already got Devin Nunes to uh, to run it, right? Yeah. He's leaving Congress. This California congressman who was just, well, he was a very strange figure to say, to be gentle uh, when he was on the Judicial Committee or one of those committees that was investigating various things during the Trump uh, presidency um, and was a total toady uh, for Trump was meeting in the White House while with Trump about how to handle certain things in Congress. But yeah, Nunez is uh, apparently going to be the CEO of this truth social. Um, He's got hundreds of millions of dollars lined up already to support this thing. And whether that changes the equation for him or not, because he, you know, he's, it's, he's clear, it's clear that he's suffered somewhat from being bounced off, um, the more traditional social media uh, channels like Twitter. And if he can create some new thing of his own, although, you know, other things that he's tried in this last year haven't turned out that well at all. Um, they basically uh, failed. How this one will do, what impact it could have, because he thrives on that kind of attention that he can gain with millions of followers, and there's no question he has that. And if he creates his own channel, that that may be worthwhile for him. Well, I think it has the prospect to be a, a game changer for him. But I also feel like if he if he Trump um, starts to look more and more like somebody who is preparing a run, then the media coverage that he craves, the traditional media, the mainstream media coverage that he both derides but is addicted to that's going to pick up again. Um, it will naturally because the media organizations, I think will feel, well, we have to cover this guy. He's running for president and, uh, or he might run for president. And we, we need to be um, kind of presenting the views of the likely Republican nominee based on all of the evidence in the poll so far. So I think his profile is going to go up. I think that uh, his, uh, this social media venture will probably work. I think the, you know, one of the things that's going on that we should probably bring into this conversation is the challenges that Democrats are feeling right now are, are fairly intense. Um, 
You know, you could look at Americans and say, well, how could the Democrats be in trouble so soon after Trump? Because wouldn't America just be breathing this prolonged sigh of relief at being rid of this guy and, and all of his shenanigans and just craving something that feels more stable? But that's not really what we see in some of the um, some of the political skirmishes right now. The governor's race in in uh, in Virginia being a case in point, I, I think you and I both read a piece in the New York Times that that kind of documented what was wrong. Why did Terry McAuliffe lose that race, even though it was a, a state that was carried by Biden by, I think, about 10 points in the presidential? And embedded in that story was an interesting piece of analysis by a pollster who had kind of worked on that campaign. And and he described, uh, among other problems for the Democratic Party, a situation where the Democrats to uh, a fair number of voters look so preoccupied with um, equality and equity issues uh, that it's hard for some of those other voters, some of those voters to feel like, well, the Democrats are really focused on me. And I'm not saying that in any way, shape or form as an argument against the focus on equity uh, Issues. I'm saying it can create and may have been creating a knock on negative effect among Democratic voters who say, well, the Democratic Party is the party of equity now, and it's not the party of helping all the little guy, if you like. And I think that is a vulnerability that Trump was able to exploit before, and he'll be looking to exploit again. And it's a thing that I think Democrats are wrestling with because they're uh, as a party, they're definitely not going to abandon the pursuit of uh, that equity uh, platform. But at the same time, uh, they can't afford to be much more vulnerable to Trump or to a populist uh, because, you know, I think America does look like it can rally to to some of those themes um, pretty easily. Certainly they have uh, in electing Trump the first time. Uh, with the Muslim ban and all of that kind of stuff. And and there's no evidence that America came away from the Trump experience, at least Republican America came away from the Trump experience saying, wasn't that a terrible thing that we did? Um, a lot of them seem to be thinking, you know, either the election was taken from us uh, or uh, we should try that again. You know, or both. I, um, I was reading a piece the other day, and I can't remember where it was, but it was trying to isolate what was the turning point for Biden because the first few months of his presidency looked pretty good. His popularity numbers were good. And this piece concluded, based on looking at the numbers, that the turning point, the moment where things started to go sour, uh, was Afghanistan. And the whole way that withdrawal was handled and the disastrous um, coverage that that resulted in uh, disasters for for Biden and obviously for a lot of people in Afghanistan. Um, the irony, of course, is <laughs> what Biden was doing poorly, as it turned out. Biden was following a deal that was orchestrated by, negotiated by, signed by, sealed by, arranged by Donald Trump. The exit of American troops in total from Afghanistan. But as I said, the whole way it 
it was handled was was a disaster and the american public wasn't ready for it i don't think they ever understood it at the time the deal was negotiated with the taliban um under trump but they sure understood it when they were watching it on their television sets and it started a whole series of problems for biden which he uh is situated in the middle of right now with a popularity figure around 40 percent when it had been around you know high 50s uh just a couple of months before now doesn't mean it's going to stay there ronald reagan as i mentioned a couple of weeks ago was in a it was in a mess in 1982 but by the time the uh, uh the 84 election uh was held he totally recovered and uh, won a landslide victory so things can change uh in politics everywhere um both uh, they can although i do i do wonder if um, the age of biden is starting to yep. have an effect on how he's perceived in the role and with the lead time that u.s presidential elections normally kind of demand the conversation about who's going to succeed biden is is kind of happening imminently it feels to me and whether it's kamala harris or somebody else uh, i think for biden 2022 is going to start to feel more like that timetable is closing in on him and unless his performance in the pool in the poll starts to strengthen, um, you know, which probably has a lot to do with the pandemic um, because the economy is functioning pretty well. Um, then, then I think you're going to hear more Democrats kind of saying one way or another that either Harris or somebody else needs to be the nominee the next time out. If, if they're going to be Trump. That succession discussion is a real mess too, because of, Kamala Harris, who everybody assumed was going to be in great shape, is not in great shape. And there apparently is a lot of tension between the White House and uh, and the vice president on a number of fronts uh, and with the party. So who knows how that's all going to turn out. Okay, there is another American story. Want to discuss it. Take a quick break here and be right back. back with smoke mirrors and the truth bruce anderson is in ottawa you're listening on sirius xm canada channel 167 canada talks or on your favorite podcast platform and welcome to you wherever you're listening from um 1992 if you can put your mind back to that time i can i was in uh, albany new york which is the state capital of new york state And I was interviewing the governor, Mario Cuomo, and we were talking about the presidential election that year. So this would be in the fall of 92. And Cuomo was a major figure in the Democratic Party, big time. And a lot of people wished he'd run for president. He toyed with the idea, and there's all kinds of rumors as to why he never did run. Questions, dark secrets about his past or his present, but whatever, he didn't run. But he was still this major figure in the party. He was a great speaker. He could uh, he could have a convention hall on the edge of its seats and then up on its feet with major applause on his big lines. 
But we talked about, as I said, the presidential election that year and what was needed in terms of leadership. And, you know, he didn't exactly have a great relationship with Bill Clinton, who was a Democratic nominee that year. But uh, he put on a brave <laughs> face in that interview about Clinton and uh, because he was running against an incumbent president in 92 in uh, George Bush Sr. and eventually won. Anyway, I've been thinking a lot about Mario Cuomo because he was this kind of giant figure within that party. And, you know, he's, he, he's um, passed away a number of years ago, but he always had great hopes for his sons. One who would become Andrew, the governor of the state of New York, just like he had been. And his younger son, Chris, who was uh, a lawyer and an eventually a uh, kind of media figure. Well, both the Cuomo boys have, uh, have either resigned or been fired from their positions for any number of different reasons. But clearly uh, none of them that would have made their father proud. The Chris Cuomo thing underlines the current kind of state of the media because it boils around the, the big T word, trust. Who do you trust? Why do you trust them? How truthful are they? And it's clear that uh, Chris Cuomo was not only not truthful with his audience, but he wasn't truthful with his employer about the role he was playing in trying to defend his brother, who was caught in the middle of a I don't know, sex scandal, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. So what's your uh, take on this story? What does it all say about, I don't know, state of the, state of the media? Because, they, you know, the, 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 he was at CNN, Chris Cuomo, and that whole cable news operation in the States is in some turmoil. There are big holes now in, in the uh, uh, various primetime schedules. That's where all the money's made. Cuomo was the the major player. The 9 p.m. hour for CNN was the highest rated show. 9 p.m. on MSNBC is Rachel Maddow. She's moving on. And so is Brian Williams, who was at 11 o'clock. An old friend, great journalist, had had his problems on the trust factor a few years ago, but seemed to have rebuilt his reputation, and who knows where he's going. But there's a lot of things happening, and with all of that, there's also a, a declining audience for cable news. Yeah. So yeah. What, do you, what do you make of all this? Well, look, I, I hate the, um, the Andrew Cuomo story on so many levels, um, but most importantly, I hate it because... Um, I can't stand to see these examples of men in positions of power who seem to believe that accusations come at them and they can just deny the accusations, even if there's some truth to them and that more accusations come and they keep on um, uh, kind of taking this position of, we're just going to deny everything. I'm just going to pretend that none of this ever happened and all of these people are making these stories up about me. And, you know, he's not the first person um, 
to kind of uh, take that approach. And I guess he still maintains that, uh, that nothing untoward happened, but with the, the really large number of those accusations that came forward, um, I kind of look at it and go, you know, I, I think that it, at some point denying that anything uh, was inappropriate is not a, it's not an honorable thing. It's not a, just a, you're entitled to your own defense thing. It's, it's adding insult to, to injury. And so I, you know, it's very, very disappointing to see those things. And then when I think about Chris Cuomo, um, I sort of ask myself, well, if somebody really close to me was involved in a story like that, a brother or a really close friend, would my obligation be just as a human being to try to help them in their denial uh, to try to find out who might be the next accuser and participate in some sort of effort to minimize the effect of the accusation, regardless of whether or not there was some truth to it. And I'm saying this, not knowing all of the details, obviously, about what went on behind the scenes, but it did have the look of Chris Cuomo deciding that he was going to help um, manage uh, the you know, the flow of these explosive allegations and try to help his brother figure out how to deny and tamp down uh, the effects of that. Um, and, you know, maybe he had a conversation with him and said, did you do any of this? Um, and maybe the brother said, no, I didn't. But, uh, you know, I don't think that you can look at that role and say, well, it's honorable to have tried to defend his brother because he was his brother. Um, and that's separate and apart from the role. And this is the last point I wanted to make, I guess, Peter, is, is separate and from, uh, apart from the role of Chris Cuomo as a, a journalist. And I, I kind of hesitate to use the word journalist. And I'd like to know what you think about this, because to me, some of these cable news hosts have become more personalities uh, media personalities than journalists. And uh, maybe that's what they have to do in order to get the audiences that the networks require in order to support their business model. But certainly what Chris Cuomo was doing in aid of his brother was not consistent with the values of journalism, either as CNN proposes them or as they're generally accepted in society. And so he definitely, there was a breach there, but I also feel like he had this unique uh, aspect of how he approached his on-air personality, which to me was kind of like a bro uh, machismo kind of style. And it never appealed to me, but it certainly seems like, um, you know, it's probably one of those things where people looked at his conduct once they found out about it in support of his brother and said, well, that all kind of fits together and none of it really belongs on uh, in a journalistic frame. And uh, obviously for CNN, they took a look at it and said it doesn't belong on our airwaves. And uh, I think they made the right decision. And I don't think that we'll know whether they could have or should have made that decision earlier what they did know or didn't know. And maybe some of that will come out, but hopefully other um, media organizations will take a look at this. And, and as these things sometimes do serve as a kind of an internal uh, reminder 
uh, gut check and organizations will stress test their policies in these areas and, and whether or not everybody is kind of living up to the expectations that they that they set for their organizations. And obviously, these are also expectations that they hold the rest of the world to account for. If Chris Cuomo had this story, but it was about another journalist in another network and their sibling who is in politics, one could only imagine um, how fierce that coverage could have been or might have been. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know Chris Cuomo. I've never, uh, never met him. Um, I do know a number of people who worked with him when he was a reporter at ABC before he started anchoring. I think he did some weekend anchoring, but, um, but as a reporter, he was a Justice Department um, a reporter, given his law background, for ABC. And they all talked about, they were very high on, on him as a, as a reporter. But sometimes things happen when you, uh, you know, you, be, <laughs> you become an anchor, especially in that hothouse of uh, cable news in the States in prime time. And he was given that big hour. And he did take on that kind of a persona that you d- described. Um, and uh, I, I was never attracted to it. I, 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 I found it too much of an act. Although there's no question he was a smart guy. Like he, he had a, yeah. a, a real command of, uh, of the facts on, on, on various issues, which makes all this even that much harder to, uh, uh, I'm sure for CNN to uh, to accept, but the, it's clear there was a lot of debate within that organization throughout these past couple of months, and some some other anchors distanced themselves from the Cuomo story and from Cuomo himself. I imagine um, they saw what was coming. Um, just be, you, before we shut this one down for for today. Uh, what do you think about, I mean, I, I, I guess there's, you know, a couple of years ago when we were swept up with the Me Too stories, one assumed exactly the way you're talking about this one, that it was going to change things in a substantial way, um, especially in that industry. But here we are still with some of these same, certainly some of those same questions about uh, Andrew Cuomo, and part of the Chris Cuomo story is also seems to be about a Me Too angle as well. Has it significantly changed things? Not just in the in the media, but generally. Well, I feel like um, I have two answers. One is that. I'm not qualified to answer the question because the the real damage and the pain that's suffered by you know so many women over so many years and probably in so many situations today they're they're in the position to know whether or not things are changing or have changed and um and so I, I will qualify the second part of my answer, which is that I do believe that the organizations that I observe and have contact with um, uh, do, on the whole, have materially different cultures when it comes to and operating procedures when it comes to situations like this, that 
I started to watch, uh, for some reason, um, I started to watch the TV series Mad Men, which has been out for a long time. And I remember starting to watch it years ago. And then I stopped and I started again and I stopped again. And the reason I stopped again was it was so dark. It was so misogynistic. It was so upsetting to see the kind of behavior that happened in the workplace and in society towards women that I couldn't, um, I, I couldn't enjoy the entertainment value of it. I was so put off by it. I was so offended by it. And part of the reason why I was offended by it is that it was set in a time before I hit the workforce, but not that far before I hit the workforce. And some of the behaviors characterized in that show were things that I felt had happened in, in workplaces that I worked in some of the attitudes. And so I, I do feel like um, change was really needed and really slow. And I hesitate to say that the pace of change is picking up. I think that it is, but boy, we were coming from a bad place. And, uh, and so I'll be the last guy to say, hey, guys, let's all high five each other because we're, uh, we're way more aware of the subtle or not so subtle misogyny that happens in society and in the workplace. Did you watch that series, Peter? Uh, did you, did you yeah, have the same I, reaction? Yeah, I, you know, it's been a long time <laughs> since that series first came out. Um, but it did speak to another era, an era which had changed to a degree. It was never, you know, it, it was never quite as open as it was then in terms of the misogyny, but it still existed. And that's what I fear still happens today. And the, I agree with you, we're not in a position to, to answer this question. Um, but the women who I've talked to uh, in the workplace say they still feel it. It's just not as evident. It's not as obvious as it was even just a few years ago. Um, but they still sense it, and they're not sure whether yeah. they're, they're being overly sensitive. Um, but they, but that's what they believe. They that, it, that, that there's been an improvement, but it's uh, we're not there yet. Um, okay, it does feel you're right. It does feel awkward. <laughs> Two old guys talking about <laughs> about this, trying to uh, put it in some kind of context. Um. So we'll shut her down for now, and uh, and you'll be back obviously on Friday with uh, Chantel for good talk, and uh, we'll switch focus. We'll bring it back across the border, and uh, do our examination of a number of things that have been happening this week in uh, uh, in Canadian politics. And so we look forward to that. So thanks, Bruce, as always for uh, smoke, mirrors, and the truth. You bet, Peter. Talk soon. All right, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, on Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. We'll be back tomorrow with The Bridge in 24 hours. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Mansbridge.